Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. Our selection this time, The Earth Quarter by Damon Knight, read by Perry F. Bruns, Part 4. Would you live in a universe drenched with blood? Rackwood, of course. For others, there was a tragic dilemma. For them, the race had come to the end of a road that had its beginning in prehistory. Every step of progress on that way had been accomplished by bloodshed, and yet the goal had always been a world at peace. It had been possible to live with the paradox when the road still seemed endless, before the first Earth starships discovered that humanity was not alone in the universe. Human beings were like a fragile crystalline structure, enduring until the first touch of air or like a cyst that withers when it is cut open. The winds of a universe blew around them now, 
and there was no way to escape from their own nature. The way forward was the way back. The way back was the way forward. There was no peace except the peace of surrender and death. There was no victory except the victory of chaos. As the priest had remarked, there were many theories about the collapse. It was said that the economy of Earth had been wrecked by interstellar imports. It was said that the rusts and blights that had devastated Earth's fields were of alien origin. It was said that the disbanding of the Space Navy, after the Altair incident, had broken Earth's spirit. It was said that the immigrations, both before and after the famines, had bled away too much of the trained manpower that was Earth's lifeblood. The clear fact was that the human race was finished, dying like Neanderthal faced by Cro-Magnon, dying like the hairy Ainu among the Japanese. It was true that hundreds of millions of people lived on Earth much as they had done before, tilling their fields, digging stones from the ground, laboring over the handicrafts which sustained the men of the quarter in their exile. Humanity had passed through such dark ages before, but now there was no way to go except downward. If the exiles in their ghettos, on a hundred planets of the galaxy, were the lopped-off head of the race, then the ferment of theories, plans, and policies that swirled around them stood for the last fitful fantasies in the brain of a guillotined man. And on Earth, the prelates, the robber barons, the petty princes were ganglia, performing their mechanical functions in a counterfeit of intelligence, slowing, degenerating imperceptibly until the last spark should go out. Kudik fingered the manuscript which lay on the desk before him. It was the last thing he had written, and it would never be finished. He had hunted it up this morning out of nostalgia, or perhaps through some obscure working of that impulse that made him look out at the stars each night. There were twenty pages, the first chapter of a book that was to have been his major work. It ended with the words, The only avenue of escape for humanity is... He had stopped there, because he had realized suddenly that he had been deliberately deceiving himself that there was no avenue. The scheme he had meant to propose and develop in the rest of the book had one thing in common with those he had demolished in the first pages. It would not work. Kudik thought of those phantom chapters now and was grateful that he had not written them. He had meant to propose that the exiles should band together on some unpeopled planet and rear a new generation which would be given all the knowledge of the old save for two categories, military science and astronomy. They would never be told, never guess that the bright lights of their sky were suns, that the suns had planets and the planets people. They would grow up free of that numbing pressure. They would have a fresh start. It had been the grossest self-deception. You cannot put the human mind in chains. Every culture had tried it, and every culture had failed. He pulled open a drawer of his desk and put the manuscript into it. A folded note dropped to the floor as he did so. 
Kudik picked it up and read again. You are requested to attend a meeting which will be held at 8 Washington Avenue at 10 hours today. Matters of public policy will be discussed. It was not signed. No signature was needed, nor any threatened alternative to complying with the request. Kudik glanced at his wristwatch made on Oladi by spidery, many-limbed creatures to whom an ordinary watch movement was a gross mechanism. The dial showed the galactic standard numerals which corresponded to ten o'clock. Kudik stood up wearily and walked out past the carved screen. He said to Nick, I'll be back in an hour or so. 8 Washington Avenue was the Little Bear, half a block from the corner where he had first met Harkway, a block and a half from the spot where Harkway's corpse had been left in a doorway. Two more associations, Kudik thought. After 25 years, there were so many that he could not move a foot in the quarter, glance at a window or a wall without encountering one of them. And this was another thing to remember about a ghetto. You were crowded not only in space, but in time. The living were the most transient inhabitants of the quarter. Kudik stepped through the open door of the little bear, saw the tables empty and the floor bare. The bartender, Pilyurovich, jerked his thumb toward the stairs. You're late, he said in Russian. Better hurry. Kudik climbed the stairs to the huge second-floor dining hall where the Russians and Poles held their periodic revels. The room was packed tight with a silent mass of men. At the far end, Rack sat on a chair placed on a table. He stopped in mid-sentence, stared coldly at Kudik, and then went on. Or against me. From now on, there won't be any more neutrals. I want you to understand this clearly. For one thing, your lives may depend on it. He paused, glancing around the room. By now you all know that James Harkway was executed last night. His crime was treason against the human race. There are some of you here who have been, or will be, guilty of the same crime. To them I have nothing more to say. To the others... Those who have considered themselves neutral, I say this. First, New Earth needs all of you and has earned your allegiance. Second, those of you who remain on an enemy planet in spite of this warning will not live to regret it if that planet is selected for attack. You have two months to make up your minds and to close your affairs. At the end of that time, a new Earth transport will call here to take off those who decide to go. It will be the last new Earth ship, and I warn you that you had better not count on galactic transportation after that date. He stood up. That's all. The audience was over. Rack waited, standing on the table, thumbs hooked into his belt, jacket over his shoulders, like a statue of himself, while the crowd moved slowly out of the room. It was ludicrous, but you could not laugh. Two months. For almost twenty years, Rack had been a minor disturbance in the quarter, 
no more important or dangerous or mad than a dozen others. Appearing suddenly at night, staying for a few days, disappearing again for a month or two or six, he brought stolen goods to Ferguson, furs from Druxuta, perhaps, or jewels from Thon, and Ferguson paid him in galactic currency, reselling the merchandise later, here on Palumbar, some on a dozen other worlds, for twenty times the price he paid. Rack had a following among the younger men of the quarter. Two or three a year joined him. Occasionally there were rumors in the quarter of Rack's close calls with the Galactic Guard. It had never been a secret that he was building military installations on some far-off planet. But now, for the first time, Kudik realized that Rack was actually going to make war on the universe. Whatever the result, the least it meant was the end of the quarter. The stairs were choked. Kudik worked his way down to find the bar room filled with little knots of men talking in low voices. Only a few were drinking. Someone called his name, and then a hand grasped his sleeve. It was Speros Mulios, the gray little tobacco dealer whose two sons drank too much. Mr. Kudik, please, what do you think? Should we go like he says? The others of the group followed him. In a moment, Kudik was surrounded. He felt helpless. I can't advise you, Mr. Mulios, he said. To be truthful, I don't know what I am going to do myself. Nubilio Villanueva, the druggist, said, I have worked 15 years, saved all my money. What am I going to do with it if I go to this new earth? And what about my daughter? Someone came elbowing his way through the crowd. He signaled to Kudik. Laszlo! It was bald, cheerful Mike Moskowitz, one of the quarter's two doctors. He said, Some of the fellows want to form a delegation to go back and ask Rack some questions. They ask me to serve, but I've got to get back to the hospital. Same thing with Say You. He's got six things on his hands already. Father Exarchos isn't here. Will you take over? Good, I'll see you later. Kudik sighed. The men around him were watching him expectantly. He stepped over to the bar, picked up an empty glass, and rapped with it on the counter until the room quieted. It's been suggested, he said, that a delegation be formed to ask Captain Rack for more information. Do you all want that? There was an affirmative murmur. All right, said Kudik. Nominations? They ended up with a committee of five. Kudik as spokesman, Mulios, Chong Yin, the painter Prokop Vekshin, and the town clerk, Martin Paz. Kudik had slips of paper passed out and collected a hundred odd questions, most of them duplicates and some of them incoherent. Paz made a neat list of those that remained and the delegation moved toward the stairs. At the foot of the stairway, Kudik saw Burgess standing, blinking uncertainly around him. He dropped back and put his hand on the man's arm. Hello, Lewis. I'm glad to see you. How is Kathy? Burgess straightened a trifle. Oh, Laszlo. She's all right, thank you. Feeling a little low just now, of course. His voice trailed off. Of course, 
said Kudik sympathetically. I wish there was something I could do. No, no, there's nothing. Time will cure her, I suppose. Where are you going now? Kudik explained. Were you at the meeting earlier? he asked. No, I was not invited. I only heard ten minutes ago. Perhaps it would be all right if I came upstairs with you. In that way... But if I would be a nuisance... His features worked. Kudik felt obscurely uneasy. He recalled suddenly that it was a long time since he had seen Burgess looking perfectly normal. He said reluctantly, I think it will be all right. Why not? Come along. Rack was sitting at the end of the long table on the far side of the room, talking to Ferguson. Ferguson's hatchet man, Vic Smalley, was leaning watchfully against the far wall. Monk and Spider sat at Rack's left. DeGrasse, pale and red-eyed, sat halfway down the table, away from the others. He stared at the table in front of him, paying no attention to the rest. Kudik had heard that DeGrasse was still with Rack, and had wondered what he had done to expiate his sin. The obvious answer was one that he had not wanted to believe, that DeGrasse had been given the task of murdering Harkway. He had done it, probably, with a tortured soul and under Rack's eye, but he had done it. So much, Kudik thought wearily, for the selfless nobility of man. Rack looked up expressionlessly as the five men approached. Yes? Kudik said, We have been chosen to ask you some questions about your previous statement. Ask away, said Rack, leaning back in his chair. Before him was a glass of the dark, smoky liquor Ferguson imported for his special use. He was smoking a tremendously long, black Russian cigarette. Kudik took the list from Paz and read the first question. What is the status of New Earth as to housing, utilities, and so on? Housing and utilities are adequate for the present population, said Rack indifferently. More units will be built as needed. Paz scribbled in his notebook. Kudik read, Will every new colonist be expected to serve as a member of New Earth's fighting forces? Rack said, Every man will work where he's needed. Common sense ought to tell you that middle-aged men with potbellies and no military training won't be asked to man battleships. What is the size of New Earth's navy? Next question. Will new colonists be allowed to retain their personal fortunes? Rack stared at him coldly. The man who asks that, he said, had better stay in the quarter. If by his personal fortune he means galactic currency... He can use it to stuff rat holes. Any personal property of value to the community, and in excess of the owner's minimum needs, will be commandeered and dispensed for the good of the community. Will new colonists be under military dis- Look out! said DeGrasse suddenly. He lurched to his feet, upsetting his chair. Someone stumbled against Paz, who fell heavily across Kudik's legs, bringing him down. Someone else shouted, from the floor, Kudik saw Burgess standing quietly with a tiny nickeled revolver in his hand. You've just listened to Part 4 of The Earth Quarter by Damon Knight, 
here on Calm Mystery. Join us next time and discover why Louis Burgess has so dramatically gotten everyone's attention. Calm Mystery is a Murder Mystery Company production, part of American Immersion Theater. Scott Crampton, Executive Producer. Our editor is Audra Schildhaus. If you enjoy Calm Mystery, please take the time to rate us and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your fine podcasts. It helps spread the word, and the comments let us know what you like and how we can improve. While you're at it, tell a friend who enjoys a good story, or even an enemy if you need a distraction. And subscribe if you haven't already. That way you won't miss an episode. They'll download to your device when you least expect it. In the meantime, stay calm. Mystery is everywhere. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM.